Welcome to Marvelous Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this episode on Tuesday, May 7th, when it appears that there's just no stopping Avengers Endgame, amazing record-breaking run at the box office. Are you surprised at all by this, Aaron? Or Not even a little bit. Okay. Nope. It, like you said, it's Tuesday, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it was expected to happen this way. I wasn't surprised when Monday ended, Tuesday came around, and there was still more money being made by Endgame. It's like, yes, the world is spinning the, the right way. If it didn't make money at all, it just shut down. Like, everyone went boo to that. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, second and third week, mm-hmm. it makes nothing. Then I would say... The world is askew, but today it spins freely with no problems. Okay, well, uh, let me throw an anecdote out here. I'm at home recording this right now. Nancy is actually driving back from the theater. She went out today with her water aerobics ladies. And I have to stress here that her she teaches a very active but very geriatric class of, of ladies. Even they wanted to see this movie. It was that big an event. So... Which explains how just yesterday, Alkin on a Monday, Endgame brought in $10 million at the domestic box office. And, and if you look what it did this past weekend to, to poor ugly dolls and that Seth Rogen movie, Long Shot, I mean, talk about a long shot. It just, it sucked everything out of the box office. And as of right now, worldwide, the this Russo Brothers movie has sold two point two three billion worth of tickets worldwide and stateside the box office numbers again all we have right now are as of uh, monday may 6th 631 million dollars and that's what over just 10 days yeah and pretty soon all of the other previous movies are going to start creeping up because that water aerobics class that just went to go see endgame again is going to be like what does all of this mean they're going to go oh there's uh 20 other films that came before this and they're going to all right and head straight to netflix to see what's up (laughs) i will have to ask nancy when she gets home whether or not you know that will come to pass i just have to wonder if somebody's walking through the door and seeing endgame as their introduction to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where any, whether any of this would make any sense, but... I doubt it, yeah. Anyway, uh, to get back to the milestones that we're talking about here, I mean, at this point, Endgame has outgrossed uh, James Cameron's Titanic, which that film made $2.2 billion. That's $2.2 billion in 1997 money. I didn't bother to check to adjust for inflation here, but... if certainly has you know endgame at this point has not sold as many tickets as a titanic did back in the day yeah but that also stayed in theaters for it seemed like six months at least oh, God, yeah. and it, there were weepy teenagers that went to go have cry parties for some reason <laughs> at that movie and i mean it just never went away mm-hmm. it just stuck around for an obscenely long time in theaters so i mean for endgame to only be a couple weeks in it's just like well come on now realistically this thing is going to be a, a record breaker there in no time at you all you know it's it's interesting you say that about titanic because you know what you saw in theaters it's like okay i get it i i see the spectacle i see the craft and let's face it cameron is is great at those sorts of things certainly avatar proved that and Endgame having just blown past Titanic, 
now all of the discussion is, wow, is there enough gas in the tank to make it possible for Endgame to eventually overtake James Cameron's Avatar, which came out in December of 2009 and eventually sold $2.7 billion worth of tickets. And which brings us to kind of the interesting problem that Disney is facing right now. I mean, it's they are thrilled that this Russo Brothers movie has made as much money as it has, but at the same time, having just completed the acquisition of Fox, what, back in March, now James Cameron isn't just the guy that they did the Avatar theme park thing at Animal Kingdom. He's now a, a Disney employee or a collaborative partner. And mm-hmm. more to the point, he's been working on all those Avatar sequels since September of 2017. And tomorrow, Disney is having its quarterly earnings uh, conference call. And so it's kind of interesting that this info gets pushed out the door, but they, they put up literally release dates out as far as 2027. And where it gets interesting is that Avatar 2, which was originally supposed to come out in 2020, uh, has now been pushed back to December of 2021 to fill the spot spot that Avatar 2 previously sat in in uh, Disney's release schedule for December of 2020. They've got Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, which I guess is just beginning to shoot, and that's supposed to open December 18th of next year, and then Disney's live-action version of... uh, It's the origin story for Cruella de Vil, which I know, Aaron, has been keeping you up at night, all of those unanswered questions. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. We had talked previously, Dan Z and I, on looking at Lucasfilm about, you know, Iger, at the last earnings conference call, mentioned that once episode nine was going to come out that the star wars film series would go on hiatus and it's like okay so what sort of hiatus are we talking about here and it it turns out that avatar 2 comes out again december of 2021 and then in 2022 and in pretty much the exact same slot we get the first installment of a brand new trilogy so there's going to be a three-year break which those of you with star wars fans remember that was the exact spacing between New Hope and Empire and and a Return of the Jedi and likewise between Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. And then from 2022 all the way up to 2027, Star Wars and Avatar switch back and forth, trade off the lucrative holiday spot. Disney now is this company... That that has multiple 800-pound gorillas? I mean, Marvel, as we've talked about, is coming off of this huge win with Endgame and, you know, this amazing event. And it's almost like that Disney is playing chess on a calendar with four queens. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they've got Star Wars to block out. Mm -hmm. Christmas time for, you know, a certain set of years on off years and then on the off years... They plug in Avatar, Mm -hmm. which will make bank. We all know that's going to happen. And then throughout the rest of the year, they've got Marvel just stomping all over where, I mean, if they're going to do two or three Marvel movies a year, they need to open up like the first, second, and third quarter Mm -hmm. and leave the fourth quarter clear for, you know, their other queen pieces to to put on the board. Really, though, I have to ask, a lot of the reason that Avatar did as well as it did 
back in 2009 was it was the first 3D movie in yeah. decades. And Cameron had done a, such an amazing job of sort of creating a world that you wanted to sit in it and, and do that. Do you think it's possible that, especially come 2021, can you do that again? Yes, and here's why. Mm-hmm. If you look at a movie that was specifically made to be 3D, Mm -hmm. you will notice that the shots are very much different Mm -hmm. than a movie that was shot in 2D and converted to 3D. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is you don't have a lot of jump cuts Mm -hmm. that are very, very rapid in pace because it's disorienting for the viewer to be bounced around Mm -hmm. from place to place. Also, the camera moves a lot slower. So if... In a Marvel movie, if Cap throws his shield, the camera whip pans to follow the shield. Mm-hmm. And there's that blurry moment where you really don't see anything. It's just motion. Mm-hmm. And that's not very good in 3D. It doesn't translate very well. Now, if you watch Avatar, and they're even riding on a dragon creature through a forest, mm-hmm. all of those shots are very steady. The pan is very smooth. And the cuts come at a slower pace. It's not rapid fire. And that allows you to be in a moment and absorb that 3D depth. Mm -hmm. So if you just look at in 2D form or 3D form, if you put Avatar up against any 2D movie, you'll see that it's it's a much slower, much more methodical approach Mm -hmm. to each crafting each shot and making sure there's depth of field, something in the foreground, something in the background, something in the middle. And you don't do that when you shoot 2D. So if James Cameron is going to make a 3D movie, he's going to he's going to make it technically and specifically for 3D mm-hmm. to work at its finest. Okay. And that's the difference. All right. Well, here's hoping. You're, I mean, I, I appreciate your take on that. And here's hoping. I just, what at least to me seemed to put asses in seats the first time around was no one had ever done 3D like this before. And it's just sort of like, Can you pull that rabbit out of the hat again? Well, it's just like when Star Wars came out the first time, it's like everyone thought that was going to be a hokey space adventure because that's what was the norm back then. Mm. And when it exploded, all of a sudden there's a weight on Empire. There's meaning to that. Mm. It's the sequel to Star Wars. And these are the sequels to Avatar. So it's not just James Cameron coming back and doing 3D by itself that's going to get butts and seats. Mm. It's James Cameron finally, after such a long huge weight Mm. for the sequel Mm -hmm. people are going to be like okay it better be worth it because i waited forever and so it's avatar's title plus james cameron and then plus 3d if you care about that that's just the icing on the very finely crafted cake okay well the other thing i think i find a little concerning or at least I, i feel bad for cameron is that you know september of 2011 you know here's disney announcing that they make this deal with with Fox and Cameron's Lightstorm Entertainment to bring Avatar into the theme parks. And this is the language I I wanted to point out today, was that the agreement announced today gives the Walt Disney Company exclusive global theme park rights to the Avatar franchise and provides for additional Avatar-themed lands at other Disney parks. The other locations will be determined by Disney and its international theme park partners. Okay, so jump ahead, October 2012, Disney buys Lucasfilm and... Then three years down the line, we, we learned that Disney's building Star Wars lands at Disney Hollywood Studios and at Disneyland Park out in Anaheim. And, and then two years later, we get Pandora, the World of Avatar, open at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Now we jump ahead to February of 2018, and here's Disneyland Paris announcing its $1 billion expansion. And they're getting a giant Marvel land. They're retheming, you know, the front half of their Walt Disney Studios park 
to have a Marvel themed area and they're they're building a frozen themed land and then they're, they're gonna get out Galaxy's Edge as well and at no time does anybody mention anything about Avatar. The only place I've ever heard an Avatar land ever being considered was for Tokyo Disneyland, which to double back to Endgame quickly, the one mm-hmm. place around the world where Endgame is not number one at the box office and, and making bank left and right is Japan. And what's number one in Japan? It's a, a locally produced film. I'm, I'm blanking the title, but again, the Marvel films never have done quite what Disney had hoped in Japan. In fact, that's supposedly why we've had Marvel attractions built in Hong Kong. You know, we've got this giant thing that's being built in in Paris and, and likewise the work that's being done in California. But nothing, absolutely nothing announced for Tokyo Disney Seas or Tokyo Disneyland. And evidently the Oriental Land Company is like, yeah, superheroes, we don't need that. But anyway, we were talking about this, this document that Disney uh, put out there with release dates, and what, again, Aaron, what's fascinating about this is this, this is the first time where Disney sort of puts the roadmap out for this is us trying to figure out how to do mesh the schedules of the things that are already in production for Disney, for Pixar, for Lucasfilm, and Fox, along with Marvel Entertainment. And one of the projects that you and I have talked about previously, uh, The New Mutants, once again got its release date kicked down the road. It's now... April 3rd, 2020. They're not going to be the new mutants by the time they come to the show. <laughs> They're going to be the middle-aged, ready-to-retire mutants by that point they come out. Well, the AARP mutants. You're not wrong. You know, in fact, you know, I, I think the thing that's got to kill them, wouldn't you love to be bringing your, your movie that stars Maisie Williams into theaters right about now? And But I guess given what you've said previously, Aaron, about how Marvel is is smart enough to sort of trick things up about, you know, when you look at a, a Deadpool that can be funny and edgy and R-rated, or you look at something like Venom, which I know you didn't much care for, but did work the Venn diagram for, for horror and that sort of thing. What's kind of interesting about The New Mutants is that Josh Boone, when I guess he was originally pitching this to Fox, you know, what if we did something with a younger cast that was edgier, that pushed closer to horror? And Fox doesn't necessarily totally sign off on this idea, but then Deadpool comes out in February of 2016, and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we can have a little bit of a young adult vibe to this thing. And so it gets shot July through September of 2017, it's actually shot in the Boston area at Medfield State Hospital. And then Josh Boone has them deliberately cut the trailer so it looks like more of a horror film. And, and actually, the, right. the trailer drops in October of 2017, just as, in fact, the the most recent reboot of, of Halloween with, with Jamie Lee Curtis comes out. And it gets a really strong reaction then. So he's really, really pushing for let's let's make this a horror movie. Let's let's go back and let's do some reshoots and let's make this a horror movie. And the problem is, as he's pushing this in November of 2017, this is when we're just beginning to learn that Disney is is pursuing Fox. 
and of course everybody at Fox is suddenly begins to kind of second guess themselves where it's like wow if Disney's buying us and they do the MCU and they only do PG rated stuff uh, maybe this wouldn't be such a good idea so we begin to see the new mutants release dates start to get pushed back uh, January of 2018 we we hear it's going now the movie's been pushed out to February of 2019 and then Logan comes out a month later also R-rated make 619 million worldwide clearly a hit clearly shows that just like with Deadpool there's a hunger out there for edgier R-rated stuff the difference is that it's not the R rating that they're backing off from it's the horror aspects They've always had their mutants have always been in strictly the superhero genre Mm -hmm. of some form. And this is really, I don't want to say breaking the mold entirely, but the MCU learned how to do their own separate styles, but still be able to connect them all. And I think that Fox, they don't have that experience of breaking off of the norm like that with this specific brand. Stacy Snyder, who's recently stepped down as Fox chairman, when she was talking about New Mutants in September 2017, she described the movie as Breakfast Club Detention Story, only set in a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of institutional setting. And then she was trying to, to describe the genre, overall genre of the movie. She said it's a it's a haunted house movie with a bunch of hormonal teenagers, only in this case it's really superheroes meet the shining, so that's a lot of things for a movie to try to be. Well, I mean, I can get the overall concept is a bunch of kids mm. in an asylum, it's dark, it's creepy, it's haunted, they have powers go. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be haunted, but I mean there 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 are mutants that have really odd powers. Mm. So some of the powers themselves, when manifested, can add to the creepiness factor. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if, if Nightcrawler were to suddenly just bamf right next to mm-hmm. you and you smelled sulfur and you turn and there's a blue demon looking dude with a tail and a whole bunch of carvings into him, you'd freak out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if, if they wanted to go dark with just the mutant elements and make that the horror ride, they totally could do it that way. But they're just trying to say it's going to be scary and you really aren't going to know what's up. Well, speaking of scary, I mean, Josh Boone, the the gentleman who directed this, who wrote this, he's wanted to make a big screen horror movie forever. I mean, back in February 2014, Warners hired him to do a a movie version of Stephen King's The Stand, and he'd pitched it as a four-movie epic, and that movie stalled out due to budgetary things, and later that same year, he's in conversations with Universal Pictures to do a big screen version of Anne Rice's The Vampire Lestat and that one falls apart because evidently Universal somehow bobbled the movie rights and and as recently as December of 2016 he's written a version of Stephen King's most recent bestseller Revival and he's going to turn that into a movie and so this is a guy who's really 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 wanted to make a horror movie and so here comes Venom in October of 2018 and $100 million budget makes sells 850 million tickets worldwide but he's sitting around waiting for Fox to okay the reshoots and as recently as March of last year it was one of these things where it's like what's going on with the reshoots you know or, or excuse me April of this year you know, they, the studio had to admit that, yeah, we, we do need to do some reshoots. They're not scheduled yet. 
And at this point, Josh Bowen's like, I'm done. He just signed with Apple. He's finally getting to do his Stephen King story, Lindsay's story. It's uh, Julianne Moore's playing the title role, and King and J.J. Abrams are producing this thing. So supposedly one of the reasons that New Mutants has been pushed off to April of 2020 is that we finally need to do the reshoots. But the downside is... Josh isn't going to be available to do him. He's been waiting since 2017 through various management changes and second thoughts and waiting for Disney to complete its acquisition of Fox. And in the end, it's like three years I've been working on this thing. I got to go do something else. So, so that's what's going on in regard to Marvel in this brand new advanced release schedule that Disney put out. And when we get back, we're going to circle back to Endgame, and Aaron's got some thoughts about some very interesting repercussions in regards to this Russo Brothers movie. Where do you want to pick up? Because this is such a dense film, there's so much to talk about. The first time that we reviewed the movie, we reviewed what we saw on screen, mm -hmm. but there were some things that happened off screen that we really hadn't considered mm -hmm. because it was almost like a throwaway scene. The end with Steve Rogers, mm -hmm. where he goes back in time, we know that he got the Infinity Stones back, and then we know he lived out a very long and happy life with Peggy. Mm -hmm. So, great. But if you take that thought train and stop it for a second and back it up mm -hmm. and go back to the infinity stone portion. If he had to return the infinity stones, that means that he had to go back to the planet where the soul stone came from, which means that he had to come face to face with the red skull once again. Oh, once I found out about that little nugget of, of a twist, I was like, gee, I wonder how that discussion went. And uh, it turns out there was a quick little interview quote from Joe and Anthony Russo. Joe had said, he would have to encounter the Red Skull, and nobody knows what the rules are when you return the Soul Stone. Anthony Russo follows up with, nobody knows, mm. but knowing the Red Skull, he probably has a no-money-back policy. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, he's probably going to be rather stubborn on that, and you can't really ask to talk to the manager in that case, Becky. I, 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 a quick side note here, though, that uh, now, face it, in Infinity Wars, we saw... Thanos pitches Gamora off the cliff, and that's how he collects the Soul Stone. And they did sort of find a workaround in that bringing the Gamora, uh, who had yet to meet Star-Lord, forward. Given that that happened, could there be a workaround for the Black Widow, or...? There very specifically is, and we'll get to that last, because that, that is actually going to come into play probably a lot sooner rather than later. I don't know about Black Widow specifically, mm -hmm. but I just know that there is now a doorway that opens that opportunity should Marvel want to venture down that path. Okay, all right, we'll continue on. One moment that came at the end of the film mm -hmm. and also the very end of filming. Mm -hmm. There's the moment where Thanos says, I am inevitable, mm -hmm. and Stark responds with, and I am Iron Man. And it turns out that Robert Downey Jr. didn't want to go film that particular line at that moment because the movie had already wrapped mm -hmm. and the Russo brothers were in editing. And that was one moment where they didn't have the perfect comeback mm -hmm. just yet. And so they were still kind of toying around with ideas at that point. But the movie was mostly assembled and, and put together. 
And it was their editor, Jeff Ford, who said, what about, and I am Iron Man. And so they had to have a, a lunch with Robert Downey Jr. And, and convince him to come back to shoot this one scene. Mm-hmm. And I think Robert, the reason Robert did it, the way it was quoted, it just seemed like it was an emotional place that he didn't want to go back to because it's kind of tough as an actor to mm-hmm. venture to those places. And he ended up going back to do it. But the to make this last bit of filming for Robert Downey Jr. a little bit more bittersweet, mm-hmm. It was filmed right next door to where Robert Downey Jr. had auditioned to play Iron Man over 10 years ago. No, really? Yeah. As the story goes, I only read the interwebs. I cannot prove mm-hmm. the interwebs. But that's what the interwebs had told me when I was looking around for information relevant to uh, Endgame and whatnot after we had seen it. And, you know, sometimes people criticize when people uh, or when movies go back for a reshoot, mm-hmm. like they're it's broken or something like that. And it's like, no, maybe they just haven't found the right, you know, perfect moment for a specific scene. And, you know, you got to just film three or four different things. And if they all aren't just hitting right emotionally for the, the director, guess what? They're going to write another one and they're going to film it. And aren't you glad they did? Because this is apparently the last thing that was ever shot for Endgame. There was this great story about John Favreau who fought with Marvel about, I want Robert Downey Jr. for this part because, you know, the whole emotional overlay of where Downey was with his career and how damaged Tony Stark was at the top of the movie was this amazing Venn diagram. But at the same time, what Favreau loved about Robert Downey Jr. is that he loved to ad lib on the set. And so they'd work on the script and overnight they'd come in with new pages and Downey would just hit the ground running. And On the other hand, here's poor Jeff Bridges, who's very, very old school. I mean, again, Lloyd Bridges' son comes up through the system, and it's just sort of like there were so many mornings where I'm just sitting in my trailer waiting to begin working, and it's like, well, we we haven't finished the script pages for today yet. And And he said, eventually, I just had to sort of resign myself to, a okay, I'm in a $180 million student film, and I will just roll with it. And Robert's going to say something, and I'm going to say something, and then we're going to shoot the scene. But Yeah. And I'm fairly certain that even though Stark has been eliminated from the MCU, I still have a feeling we're going to be seeing his face, because we already kind of sort of have in the new Spider-Man trailer. That's a very interesting point. So often when Aaron and I are recording these shows... We could virtually guarantee that within 24 hours, whatever we're talking about, a trailer (laughs) will come out to to contradict that or a story will break or that sort of thing. So this is really the first time in a while we're on the right side of a trailer. Yeah. Spider-Man Far From Home dropped yesterday. So we've had the luxury of of eyeballing this trailer. And, And you're right. I wasn't, I should have expected this, but I was honestly kind of surprised by the tone about we are definitely post-Endgame, and the world is mourning the loss of Tony Stark as this thing gets started. Well, I also think it's a good way to not reveal a darn thing about the plot of the movie, is taking a look backwards at, oh, remember Tony? Mm-hmm. Wasn't Tony a great guy? Oh, we all miss Tony. Mm-hmm. Uh, have we killed the, what, 15, 20 seconds of trailer time? Okay, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Right? Uh, right? Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I loved that scene with Happy. There's a few of them that with Happy that were really good. The very last scene with Happy and the kids and you work for Spider-Man. No, I work with Spider-Man. And then the plane explodes and okay, I'll, a new plane. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I have to admit that there really is an art form to cutting together a great trailer. And that truly yeah. 
is a great trailer. But at the same time, lots of amazing little tidbits dropped in there. Oh, no, no, no. Not little tidbits. I mean, massive, massive Mm -hmm. things just plopped out. I mean, these are things I I would think are normally reserved for the film itself. Mm -hmm. You don't put this information in a trailer, which almost makes me think that it's a a MacGuffin. It it can't be happening. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's happening. Mm There's a line with Samuel L. Jackson where he mentions that Mysterio's from Earth, just not our Earth. Mm -hmm. And then Peter replies with, oh, there's a multiverse? And so, boom, that right there cracked open a huge thing. And, you know, it was exactly what I was hoping for a couple episodes before Endgame came out. Mm -hmm. I was hoping that Endgame would kind of crack open like an egg and allow us into the multiverse Mm -hmm by the end of the movie and I just missed it by a movie. It ends up coming in Mm Spider-Man. When the trailer came out, Mm -hmm. I remembered one thing very, very specifically and I sent you a a image of that moment Mm -hmm. and it's Dr. Selvig from Thor 2 Dark World and he's standing in front of a chalkboard and it's got basically uh, the, the nine realms that they were dealing with in that movie drawn out in the chalkboard. However, in the background, fake math and science stuff that's scribbled all over the chalkboard, there's a couple of things that do have significance to a comic book nerd, specifically a Marvel comic book nerd, is the number 616. Look at that. Oh, my God. You're right. Holy cow. Yeah. 616 is sitting there next to his, uh, Dr. Svel- Selvig's head, mm-hmm. basically right in the center of the shot, so you can't miss it, and it's underlined two or three times. <laughs> So you really got to catch okay. it. Okay. And the thing about 616 as a number is that is the prime Marvel universe. So if I were reading the Amazing Spider-Man comic book, that adventure is taking place in Earth 616. Now, I myself, being on this real Earth, is known as Earth 1218, mm-hmm. where superhumans do not exist. So we all have designations. So what I know now, because they had that 616 there, Mm -hmm. is that we in the movie theater are still on Earth 1218. The MCU is taking place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe galaxy. It's a a different realm Mm -hmm. from ours. That is the 616 universe. And also, the other thing that I didn't think had any merit to point out up until just a few hours ago when the Spidey trailer dropped Mm -hmm. is on the other side of Selvig is the word fault. And the fault is a crack in space-time where other universes leak through so heroes from a parallel universe can come to us Mm -hmm. or we can go into their universe. As Nick Fury had said Mm -hmm. in the Spider-Man trailer that there's a... When the snap happened... Mm -hmm. It split open and allowed uh, this multiverse to happen. If that be the case, then possibly the fault that was scribbled on a chalkboard all the way back in Thor 2 is now a relevant Easter egg to go back and wow. check out because that, that may be the place where we travel to okay, and from. So in theory, we could get a Black Widow back through that? Well, not necessarily get Black Widow back. We would get a different Black Widow, an alternate ah. universe version of Black Widow okay. where maybe she never teamed up with Hawkeye specifically and they have to learn how to rebuild their friendship from scratch. Something like that. Hmm. So this does allow okay. with time travel, 
Now in the MCU, and we got, you know, apparently Scarlet Vision taking place back in the 50s, apparently. Mm -hmm. You're going to have time travel in the MCU to go at any point in time. And then along with the multiverse, you can literally go anywhere in time. And oh, I also wanted to point out while I was talking about Earth 1218 is where we are. 616 is amazing Spider-Man. The ultimate universe is Earth 1610. And just for Mm -hmm. a point of reference, Miles Morales was born in the ultimate line of comic books. So Miles Morales, the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, technically should be taking place on Earth 1610. And they would have pulled a Peter Parker from Earth 616. Oh. So, yeah, the the web gets tangled now. We are verging on having to hand out the complimentary whiteboards at this point. If you thought that tracking all of the Easter eggs were hard throughout the Infinity Saga, Mm. now you have to know which version of Earth that Easter egg is taking place in or which multiverse we're we're now going to be in and see how all of those threads connect into a fabulous tapestry of storytelling. Now, my problem is, as much as I enjoyed this Spider-Man trailer and, you know, face Mm -hmm. it, the teaser that dropped early in the year, also enjoyable, but... There's a part of me because of Mysterio's past in the comics that, you know, the whole notion of Mysterio as a hero and I guess the elementals, is that the the villains that we're seeing, these uh, fire, water, you know. They had some toys that were coming out for the Spider-Man movie, and they actually referred to one as Hydro-Man, but I also think that they just named him that because that's what he is in the comic books, mm-hmm. and he's that's what he is normal man-sized. I really don't know if we're going to get Hydro-Man, Sandman, or anything like that. I think they will just be elementals and, and not be in any sort of human form. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know where they're going to be coming from. I don't know how they were. Well, I guess Fury says that they came through, I would guess, from the multiverse somehow. And I'll tell you, just as a fan, I I don't mind that he's on the good guy side at the moment. Mm -hmm. The only thing I cared about was when they showed the shot with his bowl head Mm -hmm. and there was that little bit of cloud swirling around and under the bowl. And I was like, oh, that's. That's exactly what I always dreamed it could be. Thank you, Marvel. That That's all I wanted out of that trailer was that nice little image there. I know all the Spider-Man stuff's going to be fantastic. I just wanted to see what Mysterio's bowl really looked like in action. That was a beautiful shot. I'm, I'm happy till the movie comes out. One of the things that made the very first movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe so great was that last little beat of... Iron Man, where he's at the press conference and he has Rhodey's given him the speech and the explanation, and then it's like, ah, screw it, I'm Iron Man. And I love mm. that you know, if Far From Home really is how we wrap, you know, the Infinity Saga, it's the last film of the series. I love that it has the same sort of moment with with MJ going, you know, I have something to tell you. You're Spider Man, right? And it's like, no, 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 right. no, because it's pretty obvious. I love that. They can do that with these movies. I'm buying a ticket to go into the theater just to see that scene. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the old superhero trope of I've got a girlfriend and I can't tell her because then she'll be in danger. And they almost turn half of an hour of movie time into the will I tell my significant other about my secret identity? They did it with Superman and Lois Mm -hmm. back in the day. So this is one of those times where it's like we've seen that scene in all the movies. So let's not do that scene. Let's just have him walk up and go, hey, by the way, and she goes, oh, you're Spider-Man? And let's move on with the movie, right? 
That's the thing of a really well done trailer and playing with your expectations. Again, you know, just the, the notion that Happy is is frightened of of Nick Fury or there is the scene where Nick Fury tells Peter that he's going to have to help them while they're over in Europe mm-hmm. and Spider-Man says, "But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man." <laughs> and Fury's response is, "Please, you bend to space." <laughs> yeah. Very, very much looking forward to this dropping in a couple of weeks, but it may have trouble finding theater space given that Endgame keeps rolling on and on and on. On our last show, you were talking about the 35 different endings for Lord of the Rings. How, you know, it just, you know, you you had the half hour of ends. And just this past week, we found out about a a scene where. Remember how in, in Infinity Wars there was a moment where Thanos, after he used. The Infinity Gauntlet, you saw him in sort of this this void space with the the young Gamora. Right. They shot a scene with Robert Downey Jr. with an adult female actress playing his daughter Morgan. Which kind of gave him permission to go on there we into go. the afterlife there we go. without them. And, and yeah, and the, I'm glad they left that off. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. The Russo brothers evidently looked at it and it's like, he doesn't need more closure. He's got closure. Right. And... and you know, we don't need to put icing on the icing. Well, I mean, we've only been introduced to the little girl version of the daughter in this particular movie for, you know, maybe 50, 60 seconds of screen time. Mm-hmm. And then to throw an adult version and adults uh, for us in the audience to immediately make the connection. Oh, that's obviously the daughter that we know so well, mm-hmm. who's now for some reason an adult, because why does she need to grow, you know, 20 years in age to. Oh, I get that. You know, but again, I, I I think they were looking to bookend the the Thanos and young Gamora moment in Infinity Wars, uh, and, and then I you know see. just sometimes there's a parallel sometimes with good filmmaking with good carpentry, and and in this case, you know, we don't need that sconce on the end there. This is we're done. We right. we can leave. And speaking of leaving, folks, we're at the tail end of today's show, but I'm sure come next week we'll still be talking about Endgame. Till then, if you're looking for other stuff to listen to, we've got The Disney Dish with Lentesto. We've got Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. We've also got uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. We've got Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And we've got I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. And please head over to iTunes and rate and recommend this show. It would be great if you'd subscribe to Bandcamp. That that helps to sort of keep the lights on here. Uh, am I forgetting anything, Aaron? Or say goodnight, Gracie. Good night, Gracie. <laughs> Good night, Gracie. All right, thanks for listening, folks, and we'll be back with a brand new show next week. Till then, take care. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.